Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to do, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings or disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a corrupt, crooked, and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. But you know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father, he hath served with me in the gospel. Him therefore I hope to sin presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Yet I suppose it's necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and companion in labor, and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all, and was full of heaviness, because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not to him only, but unto me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully, that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice, and that I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation. Because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life 
to supply your lack of service toward me. And this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, as we make our way through this wonderful epistle of the Apostle Paul, as we saw there in chapter 1, Paul states to the church that his greatest joy is fellowship with the church in the ministry of the gospel. His joy is nothing else other than partnership with them in the gospel. And so he prays for them that they would prosper, that they would be successful, that they would bear much fruit in their work and in their labor for Christ. And Paul's number one aim, and I want to preface this again, is to live for Christ and to die is gain. And so Paul's number one aim, which should be our aim, is to live for Christ and to give glory and honor unto him. But as we come to chapter 2, Paul develops this theme of exhorting the church to walk together in unity. The church walks in unity and love when she sees and understands her purpose. When the church does not see and understands its purpose, there will be divisiveness, there will be backbiting, there will be all of these things of which the Apostle Paul exhorts the church to do. And so the church is in unity with one another and with Christ. And it's very clear from this passage that our union is not just with one another, but our union is with Christ. And so Paul exhorts the church to walk in unity and in love. And so here in this second chapter, he begins in the first 11 verses to call them to live a life of humility. There in verse 1, Paul continues to exhort the church, as he has previously, to walk in unity by using four clauses that introduces his purpose. If, therefore, there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And so Paul is exhorting them to walk in this unity, to be like-minded, to have that fellowship in the gospel, to have that comfort of love. All of this comes from their union with Christ. And so he gives them that first word, to fulfill ye my joy. Paul will mention joy again throughout this epistle. He mentions it several times here in chapter 2. He uh, makes reference to it in chapter 1. That is the theme of, of Paul's epistle to the Philippians, joy. He calls the believer to have joy in their Christian life. And oftentimes we have to ask the question, why there are people who profess to be believers who walk in fellowship with Christ and have no joy? You you cannot be a believer and not have joy. And so he says, fulfill my joy. Have this same mind. Have this same love. Have this same Oneness of mind. But notice what he says here in verse 3. And I think this is a wonderful point of, of application for us. Let nothing, 
Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. And so Paul calls us to to look out for one another, to esteem the needs of others more than ourselves. This is really the heart of the gospel. This is really the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why he comes into this next section, verses 5 through 11, by stating that we are to have the same mind and the same understanding as the Lord Jesus Christ does. And so he says Christ is the example, Christ is the pattern of how we should walk, verse 5. But there in verses 6 through 11, he begins to show us how to walk by giving us this uh, wonderful, beautiful description of Christ's humiliation and exaltation. Some commentators make a lot of point over the fact this was an ancient hymn. I'm not convinced it was an ancient hymn. It's written as if it could be written as some type of poetry, but Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is laying out for the church the wonderful work of Christ in his humiliation and in his exaltation. So here is Christ's priestly work displayed unlike any other passage in all of the New Testament. Our Westminster Confession of Faith asks the question, wherein does Christ's humiliation consist? And in that, we say that his humiliation consists in his being born in a low condition, in his life of obedience, in his suffering, and in his death. And so Paul begins to lay out for us the priestly work of Christ in his exaltation, or in his humiliation and exaltation. Here in verse 6, it says that who being in the form of God thought it not to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took on the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Sadly, many modern um, translations of the scripture will state something entirely different as if Christ gave up something when he came to earth. But here the Apostle Paul is clear that Christ did not give, any, give up any of his glory. Christ came from heaven as the eternal Son of God. He came to earth, but he didn't divest himself of anything as some teach. But he added to his divinity, full humanity. And that's what Paul is speaking of here in this text. That he considered it not robbery to be equal with God. Jesus Christ here is seen as the selfless example of humility. That prior to his incarnation, he indeed was fully God. To have the form of something is to have the essence of it. And so Jesus Christ has the very essence of God. He was not trying to be equal with God. He was not trying to rob God of something. He had that same essence with the Father, 
from eternity. And he says as he comes to earth, as he condescends to us in our lowly human estate, it says that he made himself of no reputation. Christ was rejected of men, as Isaiah chapter 53 reminds us. The Lord Jesus Christ did not consider his reputation, but he took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And so we see in verse 6 his pre-incarnate glory. We see in verse 7 his incarnation by becoming man, that he takes upon himself a servant. And how did Jesus demonstrate that servanthood to his disciples? He washed their dirty, stinky feet. In that ancient Palestinian culture, when they would oftentimes walk without shoes, their feet were dirty from their journey. Jesus bent down and washed their feet to show them that he was their servant, that he came as a, in full humanity to serve the needs of others. And verse 8, not only do we see him becoming man, but we see in his incarnation, his suffering and death upon the cross. So we see his pre-incarnate glory, his incarnation by becoming man, Now we see his incarnation by suffering wrath and death upon the cross. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Christ's great act of humiliation was his voluntary submission to the Father, that he was willing to go to the cross That he wanted to reconcile fallen sinful man to a holy God. Christ selflessly and humbly did what was necessary. He became our sin bearer upon the cross. And here the Lord Jesus Christ shows that he is fully God and yet fully man. And in his state of humanity... He humbled himself. Notice what verse 8 says. Being found in fashion as what? A man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death upon the cross. And so it's important that we understand the ancient creeds of the church to clearly teach what scriptures teach, that Christ is fully God and fully man. Two natures in one person. And those nature, those that human and divine nature is not confused or separated, but it's one whole person with a divine and human nature. And Christ did that all for the sake of his people. And so Paul continues to remind them that not only do we see the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we also see the exaltation of Christ there in verse 9, where he says, God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth, the tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so in his work of exaltation, 
we see Christ being raised from the dead, that Christ in his full humanity was raised body and soul from the grave. He ascended unto his Father and sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting for that day when all of his elect will be brought in to his kingdom. And so he reminds the saints that Christ is exalted. We remember this and celebrate this every Sabbath day. The exaltation and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the, the primary teaching of, of, of the book of Acts. Is the resurrection of Christ. And that the Lord Jesus Christ was exalted and glorified. And we too will be exalted and glorified on that final day. And so Paul says that because of what Christ has done for us in his work of humiliation and exaltation, we are called to live in the same way, having that selfless act of humility one toward another. We cannot enter into the sufferings of Christ as it is erroneously taught by the Roman church but we enter into life with Christ, a life of service, a life of humility. And we too consider no reputation as we give up ourselves to serve the needs of others. And so Paul uses this to lead into the second point in verses 12 through 18. That they are to live out their sanctification in this corrupt age. That wherefore statement there in verse 12, a transition from this humiliation and exaltation of Christ to this call to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now this is oftentimes a difficult verse for some. Well, we're not called to work out our salvation. Our salvation is not of any doing of our own But we must understand that there is the work of justification where Christ declares the sinner righteous because of his perfect righteousness. Nothing can be done by us to receive that justification. But in our sanctification, as our confession teaches, there is the infusion of Christ's righteousness and there is the work of the believer along with Christ working out that salvation which is already within us. But not much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13 is is oftentimes ignored when people point to verse 12 that we are not to work out our salvation. Paul says, It is God that worketh in you, both to do His will And to do his good pleasure. And so God is at work in you if you are a believer. If you are walking in sanctification and holiness, which every believer should. We should be filled with the Holy Spirit and walk in that sanctifying grace that he has given to us. And therefore, as we live out that life of sanctification, he gives us another action statement in verse 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Oh, how well we forget the age in which we live in. 
We can murmur and complain and argue about everything until the cows come home. But Paul says, do everything without murmuring, without disputing. When we live a life of selfless humility as Christ did, we won't be disputing, we won't be murmuring, we will not be complaining. And Paul says that by doing this, by putting off murmurings and disputings, you will show that you are blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. One thing that the world cannot do is point the finger of accusation at a believer and accuse him of sin because he's without rebuke. He's without fault. She is without rebuke or without fault because we are regarded as blameless and holy in the sight of God. And in the midst of a crooked age, Paul's day was very crooked and perverse. Our age is very crooked and perverse. And yet we are called to live as children of light in the midst of darkness that is everywhere around us. And he says, as you do that, hold forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain nor labored in vain. As the word of God is preached, as the word of God is given, Paul rejoices that he has not labored in vain. Notice verse 17. He comes back again to this theme of joy. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. And so Paul has offered himself in service for the saints. He rejoices that the gospel is proclaimed, that the nations hear that gospel. And it is through the life of the believer, it is through that life of sacrifice and self-giving, that our joy is seen over and over again. What a wonderful testimony to the world. What a wonderful testimony to those who despise Christ to see believers who exude with holiness, who exude with joy. And when they see that, oh, everything is so bad, and they see the, the grumbling and the complaining, and they see the, the selfish attitude of those who claim to be Christians, it's no testimony at all. It's actually a deterrent. Paul says, this is our joy. This is our call that we present ourselves before the world as those who are in union with Christ, who have that joy unspeakable and full of glory. And then Paul gives that third and final point in verses 19 through 24. This is a wonderful text. It's a wonderful text, I'm sure, that could be preached at some point. But Paul says, give honor and esteem to fellow laborers in the gospel. This is an important point because Paul comes to the end of what he has said about how we are to live in unity. How we are to serve one another. How we are to see the life of Christ as a life of service and humility. And then we go forth and show that life of humility and service in those who are given for the cause of the gospel. 
There in verses 19 through 24, Paul writes about his desire to send Timothy, or Timothus, to Philippi. You remember from the pastoral epistles that Paul writes to Timothy. This is his brother. This is his son in the faith. Paul had that wonderful relationship with Timothy. They were like-minded, and there was no man in the work of the ministry who was of greater joy than Timothy. We see that there comes those occasions in the life and ministry of Paul where others seem to go a different direction. But Timothy was always faithful, and he regards him as a brother and companion in the Lord. He says, I trust in the Lord Jesus, verse 19, to send Timothy shortly unto you that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. Paul is in prison. Paul cannot go to the church at Philippi. And so he's going to send Timothy and, and ask him, Timothy, what is the state of the church? How is the church doing in the midst of that crooked and depraved generation? I want you to check on them and come back and report what is happening. For I have no man, verse 20, like-minded, who will naturally care for your state. He not only cared for the state of the church, he cared for the state of the apostle. And so he wants to remind the church that Timothy has enjoyed a good reputation within the church. And Paul desires for him to come. Then as we come to the end of our passage in verses 25 through 30, Paul writes, to commend not only Timothy, but Epaphroditus to them. Here, Epaphroditus is one who is his brother, his companion, and fellow laborer, and fellow soldier. But your messenger, who has ministered to my wants. This man took care of whatever physical needs Paul had. It's so refreshing and so encouraging when the Lord raises up saints who minister to you in times of of great difficulty or when you physically are in need. And so Paul raises up Epaphroditus. Notice what he says about this man, for he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that you had heard that he had been sick. And so there in verse 26, he, he was... He was filled with joy, but his, he had that heaviness that they knew that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, even unto death. But God had mercy on him and met not only him, but also on me. There have been so many examples in the history of the church, particularly the time of the Puritan forefathers, where many of them did not live long lives. Many of them uh, lost children early in life. Many of them uh, lived short lives. Many of them were under sickness. And yet, in the midst of sickness, God uses His saints. God uses His workers and His labors for the cause of Christ. And sometimes, their greatest ministry is done when they are afflicted. When they're under the heavy weight of sorrow and physical decay. So many examples of this. I remember a man many years ago, and 
I was dumbfounded when I, I heard it. He says, sickness can be something that will be a great deterrent to a man's ministry. I just wanted to, 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 to say to him, I said, I don't know how anyone can state that when the history of the church shows differently. But even in the midst of our affliction, the Lord Jesus Christ is glorified within his saints. So receive him, he says, with gladness, for he is of such reputation. Because for the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death, not regarding his own life, so that he might supply your lack of service toward me. Wonderful points of application from this passage where Paul exhorts us to be diligent, to avoid strife, disunity, to consider the needs of others more than we consider ourselves, to live that blameless life. Closing, I just bring this quote from Matthew Henry. Observe where there is no true religion, little is to be expected, but crookedness and perverseness. But the opposite is true where there is true religion that honors God. We can expect much more. We can expect expect holiness, sanctification, and joy, and that united front for the cause of Christ. So here Paul calls us to give honor to those in the work of the ministry that Christ Jesus and his gospel might go forth. Let us give praise unto our God as we continue in the work of God's kingdom in the midst of this crooked age. Let us sing to the glory of God, Psalm 119a, how blessed the upright in the way. Yeah.